luxury of doing a series through a particular book. But what I tend to do, though, is pick a book, and whenever I'm given the opportunity to preach, I preach a sermon based on that book. And so this will also be a continuation of some sermons that I've already preached going through the book of Colossians. So if you would open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to continue my series in the book of Colossians. And just as you're turning there, for a bit of a background uh, on Colossae, the Church of Colossae, and what was going on, what the issues were, it's unique in the sense that Paul did not actually plant this church. One of his associates by the name of Epaphras likely did so. But yet Paul, at this point of writing, is in prison. In fact, he's in Rome, likely on a house arrest. He had a little bit of freedom. He could write letters and things of that nature. He had two imprisonments in Rome and one in which he was under house arrest. So we believe, given some evidence around us, that he is here um, in this imprisonment. And Epaphras comes running from Colossae all the way to Rome in his imprisonment. And he has a problem. And the issue was false teachers had begun to creep into the church of Colossae. It's like on a dark night when you're camping and you turn on a bright light. What happens? Bugs come flying, right? Whenever the light of truth is illuminated brightly, the false teachers always make their way to pervert that truth. Now, we're not certain as to what these, this false teaching was. There's no label attached to it. But the buzzword appears to be fullness. In fact, Paul uses that term uniquely here eight different times. What these teachers were likely telling the church at Colossae is that you can achieve a fuller spiritual experience, one that includes Christ, but one that you cannot have through Christ alone. There seemed to be a mix of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, perhaps even paganism. It might have even been an early form of Gnosticism, where you had this belief in a divine being who creates a being, who then creates a being, who then creates a being, and you have this ladder of emanations, they call it. And the further down you go and away from this divine being, the worse you were. And your goal was to get yourself back to that divine center. In order to do it, you had to climb these rungs. And Jesus was an important created being, but it wasn't enough for them to get to where they needed to be. This was the heresy that had begun infiltrating the church in Colossae. And in doing so, they are questioning the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And as a result, this letter stands as probably one of the most Christ-centered books that you'll find in the scriptures. And the theme through it, no surprise, is the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about the supremacy of Jesus and salvation. The supremacy over angels and powers. You may read that through Colossians and say, why is this big emphasis on angels? That's what the false teachers were talking about. Supremacy of Christ over the rules, philosophies, feasts, and holidays. He is supreme. But the supremacy of Christ comes with it some very serious implications, doesn't it? If Christ is supreme, then that fact must, must control our whole outlook in life. 
Christ then becomes the lens by which we see the world. He is the reason for our existence. In fact, we can only understand our existence rightly through Christ Jesus. See, the real issue for the church at Colossae was that Jesus was prominent, but he wasn't preeminent. He was important, but he wasn't supreme. So what about us? We need to answer this question. Is Christ merely prominent in our life? He's important. Or is he preeminent? You see, Jesus does not want just a place in our lives. He demands and he deserves first place. Jesus is not merely important. So what is he to you? Is he merely important? One important thing among other important things in our very busy lives? Or is he supreme? Now, admittedly, this is a very difficult question to answer. So through this text, I'm hoping to draw out four questions to help us determine whether Christ is supreme in our lives. And as we go through these questions that we'll see pulled from this passage, I hope that you will take a moment and reflect upon them honestly in your lives. But let's look again at this passage. I want to reread this because of the majesty of this passage. Pastor Brian did a great job reading this, but I just cannot help but reading this again. Starting with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Doesn't this text just make you want to worship Jesus Christ? Could it be any clearer the message that Paul is trying to convey? In fact, it's written in such a poetic form in the original language. Some have thought perhaps it was a hymn that the church had sung in the past. Or maybe even like a, a very basic or a very early statement of faith. But regardless of it, that truth of this passage must drive us to worship. It's designed to help us see that we need to bow to the supremacy of Jesus Christ in our lives. So let's start asking those questions to help us reflect on whether Christ is supreme in our life. And the first one is this. Do you seek Jesus as the supreme image of God? Do you seek Jesus as the supreme image of God? Ask yourself that. Make it personal for yourself. Now let's look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Real short little phrase. But it's packed with such strong theology. In fact, from this, we can see two real truth statements here. And the first one is simple. God is invisible. Right? He's the image of the invisible God. Makes sense. Scripture talks about that all throughout, all throughout the Bible. John 4, 24, God is spirit. 
can't see him. He doesn't have a body. 1 Timothy 1.17 describes him as the immortal, invisible God. 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God. Now we know that there are times, like say Moses, when he came to the burning bush, who was he speaking with? Speaking with God. But that image did not display God's essential nature and all of his attributes. But God wants to be known. He's given us creation, but because of our fallenness, because of our sin, we can't see God clearly through general revelation. We need something more. And so that brings us to the next truth of this little phrase. Jesus is the supreme and visible image of God. That word image, so we get our word icon or idol. It's a representation or a manifestation. You've seen this before, Exodus 20, verse 4. God tells us not to make a carved image. Why? Because that image is supposed to represent the God that it's supposed to be portraying. And since there is only one God, there is no need for an image or an icon. I remember one time, my wife and I, we went to Costa Rica. Um, I was early in ministry down in South Florida. Had three kids, young kids. Smaller church, not a lot of money, right? And so one of our congr uh, one person of our congregation, they blessed us with the trip to Costa Rica. They had a timeshare. They let us go on down there. It was a beautiful place. And we were in San Juan, and there was this massive basilica, this Catholic basilica. It was just ornate and just big and massive. And I noticed off to the side, like an add-on, if you will, on the outside there was this little extra place there that you can walk in. And they said, sure, go on inside. So I went inside, opened this old wooden door, and I went inside, and everywhere I saw were these little images, no bigger than really your hand, of body parts made out of wood or metal or something, and candles that were lit under each one. And the thinking was, and, and Roman Catholicism, certain parts of the world tend to be more mystical than others, but there was this thinking that if you had an ailment, like you had an issue with breathing, you would carve a lung, hang it up, light a candle under it, say a prayer so that you could be healed. And it was kind of icky, you know, at times, seeing all these body parts around you. It's like a horror film almost. And what they were to do, I could tell very clearly what they were meant to portray. Well, here Jesus is said to perfectly portray the invisible God. And now, if you notice, I didn't just say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I said Jesus is the supreme and visible image of God. Who else was created to be in the image of God? We are. That's one of the things God said right in the beginning. Let us make man in our image. Now, because of the sin nature, that image is tarnished, but we can see the image of God on us. We are created with personhood, a mind, a will, emotions, uh, a sense of self-awareness, my nine-month-old puppy has no sense of self-awareness when strangers come into the home and they become best friends to her. Sometimes you might think people don't have a sense of self-awareness if you're driving down the road on a busy day or you're shopping on Christmas Eve. But we do have a sense of self-awareness. We can communicate and commune with what we can't see, God himself. We were designed for these things. But as much as that image of God is with us, we don't perfectly represent him in that way, do we? We don't share what we would call God's incommunicable attributes. We're not omnipotent. You might think you are, but you're not omnipotent. You're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent. We're not holy because of the sin nature within us. 
as God is holy. That's why we're commanded to walk in holiness. But Jesus represents both God's essential and his moral attributes perfectly. I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, you've read this before, I know, but I want to draw something out of this text about Jesus being in the image of God. John chapter 1, look at verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God, right? We've talked about that. We know that. No one has seen him in spirit. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That word explain is where we get our word exegesis. It means to draw out of the text. When we're talking about exegeting the text, draw out meaning from the text. We don't slam our own preconceived notions into the text, but we draw out of the text that meaning. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He has come to explain God himself. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. One of the, one of the uh, times where I love so much reading this is it's when Jesus was uh, with the disciples in the upper room. They just finished their Passover meal. And they're just talking, and Jesus is saying, I'm going away. He's talking about his death. I'm going to the Father, praying place for you to be with the Father. He's gone through all of this with the disciples. And Philip just kind of blurts out, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And without missing a beat, Jesus turns to Philip and says, haven't I been with you this whole time, and still you don't recognize me? And talk about a mic drop moment. I've come so you can see the Father. He says it all throughout his ministry. He who sees me sees the one who has sent me. We can see God. And we do it in the pages of scriptures as we reflect upon Jesus Christ. He's God in the flesh. Do you come? Do you seek? That's the question, right? Are you seeking or do you seek? Jesus as the supreme and ultimate uh, visible representation of God on the earth. Do you? What do you seek Jesus for? He's not just merely a good teacher. He's not just a man who gets us, as the $100 million ad campaign says. He's so much more than that. We need to seek him with the intensity that comes from knowing that he represents an invisible God that we long for. Do we seek Jesus that way? Because when we seek Jesus in that way, it will cause us to bow before his supremacy and things begin to get ordered rightly in our lives. That's why that question is so important. But it's not the only question. So not only do we seek Jesus, but do you see Jesus as the supreme over all creation? Do you see Jesus as supreme over all creation? Let's look at verse 15, the second part of verse 15. I didn't quite get to it yet. The firstborn of all creation. So in a way, he says, okay, he's the, the visible image of the invisible God, but he's also the firstborn of all creation. And some people will trip over that word firstborn. So, I mean, he was actually born like, like before creation. He's like first of one of God's creations. 
that's not what firstborn means. So this is a difference between modern English and ancient languages. For us, when you think firstborn, you think your firstborn child. When I speak of Joshua, my son, he's my firstborn. Immediately comes to mind. But in the ancient world, firstborn not only meant first created, but it could also mean first in rank or first in priority. And that makes sense in the context of this passage. He's not saying, okay, he's the image of the invisible God, but he was also created by God. No, it wouldn't make sense. He's saying he's the firstborn. He is preexistent. He's separate from everything else that we know. He's not merely first person created. That would be more like an Arianism or Jehovah's Witnesses or something to that effect. He's first in rank. Exodus 4, verse 22, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. God didn't physically create people and then call them Israel. He was talking about Israel's rank of importance among the nations, a special favor that God put upon them. But this is the way that Paul is using this term. It's rank when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. See, this is really important because the false teachers are claiming that Jesus is just another one of those emanations from the divine being. And Paul is saying, no, he is all important. He is the firstborn. He steps outside of it all in importance and preexistence. And he kind of supports this argument as we go through the text a little bit more. And he supports it by giving Jesus' relationship to creation. Let's look here at verse 16. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We'll just stop there for a moment. What the apostle is saying by inspiration of the spirit is not only does Jesus kind of stand alone as first in importance of all the creation, in matter of fact, he created all things. He said all things. He created the material universe. I love, if you know me, you know I love anything dealing with space and science fiction. I love that stuff, right? And I, I was really excited when, when the James Webb telescope came online because I just couldn't wait to see some of these pictures. We are seeing things we've never seen before in the universe. All of them were created by Jesus Christ and through him. Every one of them. He created the largest things in this universe and the, down to the tiniest little quark. If you know your quantum science, quantum mechanics, the little tiniest particles, whether they're on such a magnificent scale or something so small that you can't see unless we're taking a collider and slamming particles together and see what happens. Jesus created them all. This is what Paul means when he refers in verse 15, all things in the heavens and on earth, every bit of it, the things you can see, the things you can't see, and the things we haven't even seen yet that God is going to wait and allow us to see, hopefully, you know, if the Lord tarries. But it's all designed for us to acknowledge that Christ created it all. He alone should be praised when we view the minute complexities of life under a microscope, are the grand things that we see in a telescope. He should be glorified for creation. Do you see why it is so foolish when we treasure the things of the earth greater than we treasure Christ? 
That's really what Paul is trying to draw out of this text. That's what these false teachers were getting people to focus their eyes off of this grand creator and onto the things of the earth. You can be saved by adding a little Jesus with a little bit of rules and a little bit of philosophy and a little bit of festivals and other things that you can do or don't do. Things of the earth. Their focus was going from Christ to the earth. And they're the same old, same old lie Satan tricks us with every time and time again. I mean, Romans 1, verse 25, the Apostle Paul says they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I mean, Paul can't even indict the human race without worshiping God in the middle of that. That sounds so terrible, doesn't it? We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship the things of this earth instead of the one who created, who is blessed forever. All of this is designed to make us worship Christ Jesus, to not only just see him as supreme, but to order our lives under that truth, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But he, Paul says he didn't just create the physical world, he created the spiritual world. You see that in verse 16 of whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I mean, we could speculate all day on the nuances of what that means. But really, again, remember, we have to look at this through the lens of the false teachers who are talking about Christ plus these emanations of spiritual beings that flow out of the divine being. He's like, Jesus created everything. Well, there's things that are tangible, things of this earth, this material universe, uh, whether things that are spiritual, angels. Man, it's so, worship, uh, it's so foolish to worship angels. Isn't it crazy? In our sinfulness, the human race will reject God without even thinking about it, and yet magnify angels like there's something amazing. can't even imagine what angels are thinking when they see that happen. Worship me? What are you talking about? Or we command angels to do things? How about we talk to the one who created the angels? This is what he's talking about here in this passage. So he, this is one of those truth statements that Paul is making, that he created all things, both physical and spiritual. But he takes it another step farther in, at the very end of verse 16 and said, all things were created through him and for him. Not only is Jesus the creator, he is the goal and the purpose of all creation. They were made for him. Oh, wait a minute, that means me too. That means you too. We were created by our God. We were created for the glory of Jesus Christ. Yet how much of our time, how much of our lives do we waste in pursuing things that are irrelevant when compared to the incomparable Jesus Christ? He is the purpose of creation. It was made for his pleasure and for his praise. Even some of the things we don't like. We still praise him because they're his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That includes you and I. That's why these questions are important to answer. But Paul's not done here. He says that he not only made in uh, the, the physical universe and the spiritual universe, he, he's not only the purpose and goal of it, he also predates and sustains it. Look at verse 17. He is before all things. Before all things. It's kind of a... An odd phrase to say in English, it can mean any number of things. But really, Paul is just hunting back to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He's before it all. 
should reiterate to the church of Colossae that you're looking for these angelic creatures to climb the ladder back up to the divine being. Jesus before all that stuff. You don't need to climb divine ladders. You need to go to Christ Jesus. He predates creation. And one of the showdowns that Jesus was having with the Pharisees, um, it's in John chapter 8, in fact, and, and, you know, they were getting a little snarky with Jesus. I love good snark, but this is not good to be snarky with Jesus. And, and the Pharisees got snarky. Isn't it true that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? Uh, yeah, okay, sure. Right? Well, how do you answer that, right? And so they start going, Jesus starts answering them, and they said, they mentioned Abraham, their father Abraham. And, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. Isn't it interesting? I mean, just take the grammar in just English. Before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense. Before Abraham was, I am. But then if you know your Bibles, you know I am is the divine name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. They're going to ask me, what's your name? Of all the things, Moses had to worry. They're going to ask me what your name is. What do I tell them? Tell them I am who I am. Jesus used the divine name of God. That's why the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be. He predates all of this. He is God himself. Before all things happened, I am. He's a self-existent one. That's what I am means. He was not born. He doesn't need anything for his survival like we are. Sometimes we go on a camping trip and we need to pack for survival, don't we? Sometimes we go on one of those intermittent fasts. We think we're going to die after the first four hours of being on, on a fast. Jesus needs nothing to survive. He's the preexistent one. Now, when he was on earth and he had flesh, uh, he ate just like everyone else. He wasn't hungry. He had emotions. He was, he was experiencing this earth like we, we are experiencing this earth. But when it comes to Jesus predating creation, he needs nothing for his survival. He's before it all. But he says he's before it all, and in him, all things hold together. Man, that's a really interesting phrase. All things hold together. Jesus sustains the very nature of this universe around you. Think about that for a minute. When you study science, you learn about laws. What are laws of nature? Laws of nature are nothing more than watching the hand of Christ hold everything together. We just can count on it because that's how Christ has chosen to actively work every single day. What's a miracle? Christ acting in a way that he doesn't normally act. He holds it all together. We can't be functional deists. You know what a deist is, right? A deist is one uh, popularized perhaps in the 1700s, Enlightenment era. Uh, we're trying to get rid of anything supernatural. And, and so just to kind of keep God there just in case, we have this thing called deism where we'll believe that God made everything. He's the watchmaker. He wound up the watch. He got it all going, put laws in place, and then kind of steps back, takes a seat, just watches everything happen. If we look at the universe that way, we've become functional deists, haven't we? Paul is disabusing everyone of this. Not only did he create it, not only is he uh, predating all of this, he's still actively at work around us. We can trust 
him with our life, our family, ministry. It's all held together by Christ. Whether there's a hurricane bearing down on our coastline or things in our life seem to be completely out of control. It's not random. Christ is at work. We trust him in this. The question was, do we see Jesus as supreme over creation? And you think, well, how does that really impact my bowing before the supremacy of Christ? When you understand that everything that was made was made by Christ, we begin to see things in a better perspective, don't we? We can order our life right. We don't have the anxiety that sometimes fills our hearts when things don't go according to plan. My plan, perhaps. Not the Lord's plan. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm teaching living a lasting legacy, financial planning, you know, how to order your affairs properly. We're called to be wise and make good decisions. But in the end, Christ holds it together. He holds you together no matter what you are going through at the moment. Trust him. What does it gain? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? Absolutely nothing, because this world and the things in it is not supreme. Only Christ is supreme. Let that question just meditate on that a little bit, ruminate on it, and let it cause you to bow before the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We have a third question. Do you submit to Jesus as the supreme over new creation? Do you submit to Jesus as supreme over new creation? Let's look at verse 18 through 23. Now, we'll just stay with verse 18, really. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This focus now really actually 18 to the end of the, this passage up through 23 really um, and 20 and 23 uh, begins to shift the focus from the I would say the old or original natural and spiritual creation to what we call the new creation. And the first thing that we see here is that Christ is the head of the church. What does it have to do with this new spiritual creation? Well we're saved we put our, our trust in Christ. We repent of our sins. The old is gone. The new has come. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. And then he takes all these new creatures and he places them in a community called the church. And Christ is the head of the church. The Bible talks often about the church being a body. Here, the total dependence on the body is the head. And those of us who are rapidly losing brain cells as we age begin to really see the value of a fully functioning mind and head. It controls everything. And Christ is doing it through you. H.B. Charles is a fantastic preacher up in the Jacksonville area. He jokingly said once, anything without a head is dead. Anything with, anything with more than one head is a monster. You think, well, what is, how does that work here? <laughs> it's funny, how does it work here? Well, we need something to give us life, something to give us substance. This community of believers that is a body needs the head. What happens when you have two heads? Who fights over control? Who gets to decide what happens to the body? 
This is why we as a church, we recognize Jesus Christ as the head of this church. That's why we have a plurality of eldership where there's not one over another. We don't compete with Christ over what happens here. We follow Christ. We go to the word. We follow his example. He's the head. We are not. He's qualified to be the head because he created it. He has the authority. He is the source. Many churches seem to forget this, don't they? Where you have one person, typically, to end to act like a CEO of the church. And everyone else acts like his advisors. If Jesus Christ is not supreme in a church, then there is no church. See, that was what was going on at Colossae. They were in danger of losing their connection as a body of believers from the head Christ Jesus. Because they were adding another head. Jesus plus Jesus plus works, Jesus plus philosophy, Jesus plus fasts and feasts and legalism and angels. Maybe they had lots of heads on this body. I don't know. But they were in danger of losing this connection with Jesus Christ. And as a result, they were experimenting with all sorts of false doctrine. And out of false doctrine comes sinful behavior every single time. See, the light of truth was burning brightly in Colossae. And the false teachers came flying in. It was Jesus plus. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves that question. What's my identity? What's your identity? Is it Jesus and Jesus alone? Or is it Jesus and motherhood? Jesus and my job? Jesus and my ambition? Jesus and my college? Jesus, add whatever you want to it. Those things are important. Don't get me wrong. God calls us to things. He calls us to motherhood or fatherhood or even singleness. God calls us to ministry. God calls us to jobs. And he calls us to be wise stewards of the things that he's given to us. But when it all boils down, who are we? Are we defined by Jesus and Jesus alone? Is our church defined that way? Is he the head of the church? See, Paul's reminding them of the new creation. Jesus is the head. But he also says that he is the beginning. Verse 18, he is the beginning. He's the alpha. He's the author of our faith. He's the founder of the church. He keeps saying these statements that on the surface we would agree with, doesn't he? But when you drill into it and you think about it in terms of your own life, oh, now we really have some business to deal with with the gospel in Jesus Christ. He's the beginning of it. He's reminding us that as part of that new creation thought. He's the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn again. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 1. A lot of people read Revelation and they get all tied up on things. And when Revelation is really supposed to be an encouraging book, I'm really encouraged by this passage. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. And that's so encouraging. And that's what Paul is drawing out here in this passage. That he, Jesus, is the firstborn from the dead. Now, again, we're not talking about order of time. He's talking about order of importance. He wasn't the first person to die. 
Many had died before Jesus was incarnated, lived his life, and was crucified. He's talking about this rank to being firstborn. He was, if you really want to talk about time, let's talk about it for a second. He was the first one to die in sin, our sin placed upon him, but yet raised to newness of life. He was the first person to do that. He has the first rank and importance for those of us who have also died and have been raised to newness of life. We had a baptism service recently. What did your pastor say? We quote from Colossians. Buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. What are we saying? The old me with my sinfulness, that sin was transferred to Christ on the cross. I, in essence, the old me died with Christ. I was buried with him, but because I am in him, when he was raised, I'm raised also. He did it before me. He did it rightly. Every one of us who are part of the new creation, Jesus is reminding us he is that firstborn. And why? Why is this necessary? Paul answers that question. So that he might have first place in everything. First place over creation. First place over new creation. He is the first. Have you submitted to Christ as supreme over new creation? See, I say that because it's, it's an active, ongoing exercise to bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to follow him in obedience as the head of the church. Are we doing that? Ask yourself that question. We do have one more question to ask, though, to help us see if we are bowing to the supremacy of Christ in our life. Do you surrender to Jesus as the supreme satisfaction of God and man? Do you surrender to Jesus as the supreme satisfaction of God and man? And perhaps this would be a good question to ask first, but it doesn't come first in the text. But I think it's a good question to ask all of us. Look at verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It gives God the Father great joy and pleasure to have all his fullness dwell in him. What is that fullness? There's that word that keeps coming back up. Remember, he's trying to show these people what the false teachers are, are teaching is just wrong. You want fullness. They're offering fullness, but they get fullness or they're teaching fullness by Jesus plus. There is no other fullness outside of Jesus. All of it resides in him. You can see over in chapter 2, he said the fullness of the deity resides in Christ Jesus. All of who God is now resides in Christ, and it was the Father's good pleasure and satisfaction to do that. There's some significant truths here. It's in Jesus, in him, not around him. It didn't surround him while he walked the earth. It wasn't under him. It wasn't over him. It was in him. That word dwell means to take up residence. It really points to the incarnation. And it's used as like a permanent dwelling. It would remind us of God's desire to choose a name for himself to dwell. Jesus is the temple. The name of God, the presence of God, the fullness of God resides in him. That 
all the fullness is that technical term again and meant the sum total of all the divine power and attributes it resides in Christ Jesus and why is that it was the only way to bring reconciliation between God and man what does reconciliation mean it's that restoration of friendship and fellowship after an estrangement that's how we define reconciliation I think that works Adam and Eve were once friends and together with God in the garden. Sin entered the world. They willfully sinned. They disobeyed God. They believed the lie of Satan that they could become gods themselves. And fellowship was broken. And now every core of who we are, we were conceived in sin. And the moment that we could actually act on our own volition, we sin. And sin is an ultimate affront to God. We are constantly at war with God in our sinful fallen state but God God chose to reconcile people to himself and he did it through the blood of the cross you see all that sinfulness of people who put their faith in Christ all that sinfulness that goes on to Jesus that could only happen something had to die the wages of sin is death you had the shadow and the image of the sacrifices in the Old Testament that were pointing to the need of something to die because of our sins. That was done in Jesus Christ. But because of the fullness dwelt in him, it's like Pastor Scott likes to say, you can't kill God. So God took on flesh and then took on our sin for those who put their faith in him, those who were called and chosen and believed and then died in those sins, making satisfaction and payment for sin. He satisfies God's wrath. But that, that enmity between you and between God, if you put your faith in him, the focus is to reconcile to himself all things making peace. Do you have peace with God? Or do you struggle with God? Are you always wondering if God is mad at you? But the moment you slip up, God is there ready to smack you. Is that how you view God? We need to go back to Jesus being the ultimate satisfaction of both God and man. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. If God remains angry with you and wanting to punish you for when you sin after you believe, then what Jesus did was not enough. Oh, it was enough. It satisfies God. It satisfies mankind. It brings us into reconciliation with God. It makes peace with God. Do you believe? Have you put your faith in Christ Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? You've acknowledged your sin to God, and you know there's no hope except for the saving, completed work of Christ Jesus? You haven't. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon him while he may be found. He'll hear you when he's near. Call upon him and be saved. But believer, do you still struggle with peace with God? Struggle no longer. Meditate upon what Christ has done for you. Rehearse the gospel to yourself. We say that so often, it almost sounds like a cliche, doesn't it? Preach the gospel to yourself. You hear it a lot. Sometimes it becomes white noise for a lot of people. Preach the gospel to yourself. Folks, preach the gospel to yourself. <laughs> You remind yourself of the gospel and everything Christ did and those thoughts, those guilty feelings when you slip up, you'll, you'll regret them and the longer you're a believer, you'll hate them all the more, but you'll know and have a quiet confidence that Jesus paid it all. 
because of what he did. Believe on him. Trust in him. Don't buy into lies. Christ did it all. You can't be closer to God by adding something to the finished work of Christ. That's no gospel at all. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, Augustine once said, and it was quoted in the King James, and I thought about putting this in regular English, but I kind of like the King James. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Do you find your rest in God through the work of Christ Jesus? You see, that also is an ongoing question. Do you surrender? It's an ongoing daily struggle. It's not an event. It's not a one and done. Every day we must wake up and die daily to ourselves, trusting in the work of Christ. All of these questions boil down to a larger overarching question, and that's this. Is Jesus supreme in your life? Is he prominent or is he preeminent? He can't be just an important thing among other things in your life. He must be supreme. That's what this passage is all about. It's about seeing that supremacy of Christ and bowing before him. Maybe a fitting way to close our time is just to quote Ephesians chapter 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't add anything to Jesus. Make him supreme. Keep these notes. Ask these questions to yourself all the time. Think upon them. Meditate upon them. And then do business with the Lord as he convicts you of anything that has tried to muscle out the supremacy of Christ in your life. And you'll have peace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I'm glad he's supreme and not me. Lord, there are times when I'm tempted to become supreme. There are times that we've behaved like we are supreme, and what a colossal mess it is. Because there's only one supreme, and that's your son, Jesus Christ. That's a short passage, just six full verses, and yet it's so packed with timely truth. I pray, God, that you would help us to see if we are adding something to Jesus Christ in our lives. That you would really open up our eyes to what may be a situation where he, he's important, but he's not preeminent. Convict us for that, Lord, so that we may get right quickly. That's why you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the Church of Colossae, so that they would see that as well and repent of it and turn to you. May we do that before you, God. May we submit to your lordship in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming to worship with us today. You are dismissed. The Lord be with you.